Alright everybody, today we're going to learn about how the Wizard of Oz can basically teach you everything you need to know about the 1890s. We're diving into period 6, topic 3. We just talked about all of the big changes of industrialization in topic 2. And in this topic, we're going to look at how the United States responded to those changes. So timeline-wise, we're still in the Gilded Age here, 1865 all the way to 1900. We're going to bring the progressive movement into that, which takes us into the 1900s and 1910s. Uh, and uh, World War One, I, I don't have in the timeline, but that would be in the back half of the 1910s there. The Gilded Age labor movement. We're starting to see the rise of, of labor unions, and so we want to understand the causes of that and, and the changes that took place within that labor movement. So cause-wise, um, what we want to understand is the Industrial Revolution was great for business owners. The Gilded Age, great time to be a business owner, not such a great time to be a worker. Conditions were not great. Working conditions were pretty brutal, hours were pretty long, wages were pretty low, uh, and you had to work six days a week, 10 hours a day, you were paid very little. If you complain about it, it was easy to fire you. So there was a lot of immigrants moving into the country, there was a lot of child labor happening within the country, there was a lot of specialization of labor, a lot of unskilled workers, very easy to replace these people. So workers were losing a lot of autonomy. Um, instead of working for you know, a coal miner used to set their own hours and, and they were told, we want you to um, dig. Uh, they were given a specific location and it was up to the coal miner. They had all sorts of autonomy. How do I want to dig? At what pace? At what time? But now, coal, you know, coal miners are just one example, but lots of jobs are moving to, we're just going to buy your time from you and we're gonna, you're going to um, do everything that we tell you to do. So you're paid by the hour rather than by the job. Uh, you have these very complex jobs that used to be highly skilled, now broken down into finite tasks. So a lot of skilled jobs are going to unskilled work. There's that big flow of immigrants into this country. Um, a lot of uh, very little safety. The steel industry, Andrew Carnegie's steel plants were notorious for uh, turning out injuries. Railroads were very dangerous before the air brake. Somebody had to jump basically each car of the line and apply the brake uh, in whatever the weather conditions were. So the deadliest job on the railroads was the guy who had to work the brakes of all the various cars in the um, uh, sequence of, of railroad cars. And then there was just no government support here. So the, we, we mentioned in the previous topic that the legislative, executive, and judicial branch, if they did step into any labor dispute, it was usually on behalf of the business owners, very rarely on behalf of the workers. So if you look at the cartoon on the top left there, the point of view of that cartoon is very like pro-worker. You can see how, how um, good those business owners have it on the top. They're, they're loaded, they're fat, they're represented by bags of money, and they're being carried by, on the shoulders of all of these downtrodden workers. And, and the workers are just getting exploited and exploited. And this is the problem of the industrial era. So how to respond to that? The first big union that tries to respond is called the Knights of Labor, and they try to organize all workers into one big union. Um, I think they only left out a few that they considered to be sinful industries like prostitutes, gamblers, and get this, lawyers were not allowed to join the Knights of Labor. But otherwise, they, they recruited anybody, men, women, black, white, they, they were very open. Um, they were gaining, they were gaining momentum until there was some um, the Haymarket riot in Chicago, they were blamed for that, even though they, they were, weren't really responsible for it. They were blamed for the violence that broke out there. 
and they lost a lot of support after that. So if you're looking at that chart on the top left, the growth of union membership, you can see if you follow the Knights of Labor dotted line, it, a big increase uh, in the 1880s and then in 1886 Haymarket riot collapse. A change then is the American Federation of Labor starts to gain steam after the collapse of the Knights of Labor. So the American Federation of Labor will be one of the few unions that actually survives the Gilded Age and continues into the uh, 20th century, still around today, the AFL. Uh, and they consider themselves to be a very, a much more selective union than the Knights of Labor. So they, they did not want to organize all workers into one union. They only wanted to organize skilled workers. And if you think about it, a skilled worker is much harder to replace. So if a skilled worker makes a threat, like I want a better uh, wage, I want a better working condition, I want better hours, those threats, business owners have to take those threats more seriously because they're coming from skilled workers here who might be harder to replace. The American Federation of Labor um, hung on to that issue and you can see that they, they succeeded gradually. So they kind of took a conservative approach here to dealing with this issue. Uh, they try to stay out of politics, just focus on bread and butter issues like wages, hours, and working conditions. One of the big uh, slogans of this era was the eight-hour workday. This is something a lot of different unions were pushing for. They argued to business owners that it would make people better workers. So you give us eight hours of day, we can have more rest and come in more refreshed and be more efficient workers. And we can use the other eight hours to educate ourselves and we can become better workers, more skilled, um, pick up more training. That was, a, that was a big push during this era. Um, and they would try to, they would achieve some victories on the state and local level in, in that regard. Another major change is by the, there's a lot of different strikes and I'm not going to go into all of them. Um, but there's like a, there's a, um, Great Railway strike, there's a Pullman strike, there's a, um, Carnegie has a, a strike at one of his steel plants. Um, but the, the one that where we start to see some changes is comes at the end of the um, turn of the century, early 1900s, Teddy Roosevelt is president, and there is a big strike in the Pennsylvania coal fields, the anthracite coal fields. And it's winter's coming and, and the country's gonna need coal uh, to heat things and, um, Teddy Roosevelt actually intervened in this uh, labor dispute and forced the two sides, the, the, the workers and the owners, to sit down and agree to an arbitration. The first time the federal government actually intervened kind of on the side of the workers. They, they forced the owners to sit and listen to the demands of the workers here. So prior to that, almost every major labor uh, issue, any massive strike, what would happen is that the government would intervene on behalf of the owners uh, and often round up the people who are on strike, throw them in jail, get them replaced, fire them. We didn't see that necessarily happen here. All right, so all the other ones, Great Railway Strike, the Pullman Strike, the Homestead Strike, those all kind of fail um, because the government didn't do much to help the workers. They helped the business owners, but by the time we get to the anthracite coal mine strike, that's gonna change. Another thing we want to understand in response to the industrialization are the intellectual responses that are happening around this time. One of the first big ones is called social Darwinism, and it's put out by Herbert Spencer. You see his picture there. He's got a, some, some very nice neck beard. Uh, and he, his idea, he took Charles Darwin's theory of evolution and applied it to society. He's, Herbert Spencer is the guy who actually came up with the phrase survival of the fittest. So 
He's looking at the industrialization and the massive inequality that's happening. The rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. And I've got some scenes here where you see some destitute poverty. The picture of the people crowded into a tenement on the top left. That was a Jacob Reese photo. That's a New York City tenement apartment dwelling. Child labor photo on the lower left. How would Herbert Spencer respond to these problems? Meanwhile, while this stuff is happening, Andrew Carnegie, John Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan, these guys are you know, earning millions and millions of dollars. In today's money, it would be billions. Well, Spencer said, this inequality, this is, this is okay. Uh, his, his response to this industrial revolution was to justify the inequalities that were existing. So he argued that wealth, uh, you know, that the world should continue like this and let, let things play out, survival of the fittest. The wealthy have uh, earned their wealth because of hard work and talent, and the poor have earned their poverty because of laziness and ignorance. So um, Spencer wanted governments to continue to be hands-off and not try to help out the poor uh, and, and, you know, so stay out of uh, business regulation, and, and just let kind of capitalism run wild. So that was a social Darwinist argument. Um, very, not very interested in sociology, external factors, no. Just look at uh, one individual layer of this. It, it did influence Andrew Carnegie, and so we just we need to address Andrew Carnegie here briefly. The gospel of wealth would share some things in common with social Darwinism, but it would, it would also differ in, in a subtle way. So Andrew Carnegie, uh, winds up becoming one of the wealthiest men in the United States. He's, he's a rags of riches story. He's a Scottish immigrant. Um, he works his way up the railroad uh, company ladder, and then he eventually starts his own steel industry business. Benefits heavily from U.S. tariffs on British steel, uh, so owes a lot of his wealth to that tariff in the United States. Towards the end of his life, um, he decides he's going to, uh, well, J.P. Morgan makes him an offer to sell his steel company. He takes that, and then he ends up deciding he's going to try to donate most of his wealth, which prior to that, not really any rich guys had ever done before. So he's kind of the first one to do it. He writes about his intentions in, in an essay. It's called Wealth. It's, got, it's earned the nickname Gospel of Wealth. It's published late in the, it's 1889 is when this is published. So what you're going to see happen in this essay, and, and by the way, a lot of excerpts from this essay are frequently used in, in AP exams. Carnegie is trying to justify the, that it's okay to have inequality. So it's okay that there are some people like him who have millions of dollars, and there are, there are some people who are cramming three families into one tiny tenement apartment. That's okay. Um, and he's, so he's still kind of like a social Darwinist. He still believes that the rich earned their, their wealth, and they have every right to judge what to do with it. And the government should not be taking it from them. There should not be income taxes. There should not be redistribution of wealth. So he would definitely be like, uh, kind of agreeing with social Darwinists on that front. However, he did think something that the wealthy should not just be able to hold on to their wealth. So he actually think like his children and grandchildren didn't really earn it. Uh, and they should not just be, money should not just be poured onto his, his uh, next of kin, um, his descendants. Side note, if you take a look at the picture on the lower left there, that is a picture of, a, of a, the biggest house in the United States. It's called the Biltmore Estate. It's in Asheville, North Carolina. I went there a couple years ago. It's insane. Uh, and that is, that is an estate that was built by the Vanderbilt family. And particularly, it would be Cornelius Vanderbilt's grandson. 
And so Cornelius Vanderbilt was a big railroad tycoon. He, he managed to like monopolize several of the rail lines that went into and out of New York City. So all of the rail traffic going into and out of New York City around the time of the Civil War, before and after, he's making money off that. He makes so much money, he, do, he no, donates very little of it, and gives it to his children and then his grandchildren. Th- think about how much money is still left there three generations later um, for them to build the largest house in the United States. Like that's... There was no income tax, there was no wealth tax, there's no estate tax. So, you know, this is, that's something that Andrew Carnegie probably would have had a little bit of an issue with. Like he didn't think his children, grandchildren had necessarily earned that wealth. So he had this saying, the man who dies rich dies disgraced. So the wealthy, it's, it's okay that they've earned all that money, but they need to do something with it to benefit society. And they shouldn't just give handouts to the poor. That's not going to help them at all in his mind. And what they should do instead is build institutions that can service a community. So what Carnegie did is he, he funneled a lot of his money into public libraries. So there, there is a public library that sits in Mankato, Minnesota, uh, that was built with Carnegie money. Uh, it's no longer used as a library. It's now just called the Carnegie Arts Center. Where I grew up in Redfield, South Dakota, that was my public library. We had a Carnegie library. You can see I've, I put the pictures, the Redfield, South Dakota one's on the left and the Mankato one is on the right. And you can see they kind of have a similar design to them. So once you see the design of one, you can start spotting them in a lot of other towns. But hundreds and hundreds of towns across the country got themselves a a library thanks to uh, the donation here, the philanthropy of Andrew Carnegie. But he he would try to put pressure on Rockefeller and Morgan to do something similar with their wealth. Rockefeller would donate a lot of his money and help start the University of Chicago. Uh, J.P. Morgan would would um, funnel a lot of his money into art and then help uh, start museums. So a lot of these rich guys would do this. They'd start universities, museums with, with all of the wealth. But what they didn't do is just give handouts to the poor. Now, these are supposed to be institutions that the whole public could use. However, it is kind of ironic that we still need taxes and funding and all sorts of revenue to, to sustain these institutions that these rich guys bestowed upon society. Um, so Carnegie, you know, not, not totally buying into the idea of the social gospel, which we'll get to in just a second, but, um, thought that the wealthy were better, smarter, uh, than, than kind of everybody else. And they've earned the right to do with that money, whatever they want. Um, here's a key quote from me. He says, the man of wealth has a matter of duty to administer funds in the manner, which in his judgment is best calculated to produce the most beneficial results for the community. The man of wealth thus becoming the mere agent and trustee for his poor brethren, bringing to their service superior wisdom, experience, and ability to administer, doing for them better than they would or could do for themselves. So Carnegie, the key line there is, the, the wealthy people have superior wisdom, experience, and ability. They should be the ones figuring out what to do with their money, not the government and not the poor. Okay. Social gospel. This one sounds a little bit more modern. This one is, uh, you know, definitely going to influence a lot of the progressives that we're going to talk about later. So the social gospel is way different than, than social Darwinism. Now, they both start with that word social, so don't get them confused. But social gospel is uh, would look at these, you know, the crowded tenements or the ch- child labor and, and be concerned about that and want to do something about that. And believe that people are poor not just because they're lazy or dumb, but because of external factors. And, and wanted to maybe try to get at the root cause of that and fix the external factors. Now, 
the title social gospel, the gospel part implies that there's a Christianity element to this. So they were, they were heavily steeped in Christianity. They applied Christian principles of love and justice to try to argue that the good Christian thing to do is to fix these urban problems that are resulting from industrialization. So they kind of developed this idea and this, this phrase, it would become a catchphrase in the 90s of what would Jesus do? Um, as, a, as a kind of a way to question public officials and leaders about what's the best way to fix some of these problems. So they believe they push churches to, you know, churches have a moral responsibility to take the lead, to confront social problems, to help the poor. That These people should not just be cast aside and left alone, left to their own devices. They need help. Uh, all right. So that was a that was a foundational ideal of the social gospel. And because we haven't said the word social enough and that's not confusing enough, let's add another social thing in here. Socialism. All right. So socialism is going to arise in response to the problems of the of the uh, Gilded Age industrialization. Socialists are, are a worldwide movement here, but they're very concerned about the, the growing inequality, the gaps between the rich and the poor. And they're looking at people like Rockefeller and Morgan and saying, these guys aren't captains of industry, they're robber barons. Uh, and so they're pushing for government to regulate, government to take over key industries. They want the workers of the world to unite and they want uh, the lower classes to be helped. Uh, and, and they're trying to organize. The, the, the big name for the socialist union in the country was the IWW, the International Workers of the world. And they, kind of like the Knights of Labor, tried to organize everybody into one big union. They never found much success in the United States, kind of like the Knights of Labor. Um, they ran into a lot of the same problems. Another big name in this field would be Eugene Debs. He's going to run for president a lot. Uh, and he's going to do actually not too bad when we get to the 1910s. He's going to be hanging around and, and actually picking up quite a few votes. So Eugene Debs is a, a member of the American Railway Union. He'll be instrumental in the Pullman strike. He'll get arrested in jail. He'll become radicalized. He'll become a socialist, and he'll become the biggest name of the socialist movement here around this time. All right. We also, another response to the industrialization is we want to look at it from a rural standpoint. All right. So the labor union is kind of the, the working class response to industrialization. The populist party is going to be the, the rural response to industrialization. And when we get to the progressive movement, that's going to be kind of the urban middle class response to the industrial uh, Gilded Age problems. So the populist party grows out of the Midwest. It's, it's mostly farmers. And the, the farmers are upset with uh, monopolies and the way that the economic system is running and all of the power that corporations have and how they are exploiting farmers and how farmers have they don't have a whole lot of financial stability at this moment in time. The West was supposed to be a place that anybody could kind of um, make a living for themselves. But a lot of people are striking out in the West. There's a lot of bankruptcies in the, in the West. A lot of railroads are going under. Everything is being propped up with government aid. Uh, it doesn't seem to be that rugged individual thing happening out in the West so much. So a lot of angry workers, a lot of angry farmers out in the West. Their biggest problem is deflation. And you can see it in the chart uh, off on the left there. You see wholesale commodity and consumer prices, and you just see them going down from 1865 all the way to 18, 1890s. So consumer prices, whole, uh, wholesale prices, food prices, everything's going down. So when, when prices decline, we call that deflation. Uh, why was it happening? Farmers were overproducing. So they were opening up millions and millions and millions of acres of new land. 
you think about just Minnesota and how, you know, we go from 1860, just thousands of new people pouring into Minnesota, all these homesteaders. So new, new land that's never been farmed before, better technology, um, and so just more efficient farming. And that's happening not just in the United States, but like Argentina is going through the same process too. So this is a worldwide phenomenon. And, and commodities aren't just sold within one country. This is worldwide commodity uh, index here. So the crop prices, just some stats here. From 1870 to 1890, corn fell by 33%, wheat by 50%, cotton by 66%. And these farmers are having a harder and harder time meeting their mortgages, which means they're, they're facing bankruptcy and foreclosure and the banks are... Are taking things from them they're all they're they're not blaming themselves so they don't think that this is a overproduction problem they think wait a second how can it be overproduction there's people starving in the cities so they're blaming railroad companies who are price gouging them um, there's a weird statistic about like farmers in South Dakota uh, it, it could it was there was a weird uh, stat one year where it was cheaper for them to ship their goods to Europe than it was to Minneapolis. So they're just getting price gouged by railroads. Banks are taking you know their farms and equipment away from them, and so they blame. They're bl mainly blaming banks, East Coast, Wall Street. That's who they're angry at, and you can see this anger in in some of the images on the left there. So the populist. Uh, um, character is embodied in that colorful picture there where the farmers in the Middle East says, I feed you all. And all these other people have important jobs, but none of you would be able to do what you're doing without the farmer. And so it, the farmer is, is centering themselves as the most important person in the country, the real American. On the lower left, you see the image of that giant cow stretching. And what's happening is uh, the, the Mississippi River is kind of straddling, the cow straddling the Mississippi River. So the farmers are off on the, on the left, on the west, feeding the cow and they're farming and they're providing input into the cow. The cow represents the U.S. economy. And then off on the right side of that image, well, the, the teat of the cow, the, the udder where the milk comes out of is, is um, connected, hooked up to Wall Street banks. And so Wall Street banks are just sucking all of the wealth out of that cow. Meanwhile, the farmers are the ones putting all the work and effort into making that economy uh, function, the cow representing the economy there. So the farmers were upset. They started to organize. They formed a Grange movement in the 1860s. That was mostly social. It started to get political. And the Farmers Alliance got a little bit more political. They started to form cooperatives. And they also were realizing that no political party was doing much for them. The Republican Party, Democratic Party, not much happened in there. So in the late 1880s, early 1890s, they launched their own party. And they call it the People's Party. We nickname it the Populist Party. Uh, and it takes off. They do well. They do well in the Midwest. So let's take a look at some consequences. They win some governor's races. They take some majorities in some state legislatures. They win a few Senate seats. Uh, and they, I think, uh, they run a few people for president. Uh, now, they're, they're most famous for drafting this very radical platform in 1892. It's probably the single most popular primary source to appear on AP exams. It shows up every couple of years, a different excerpt of it usually. So it starts off with kind of a radical statement about how, um, how screwed over the workers in this country are and how the railroads are taking everything. And then it moves on to demands and um, they're demanding you know, more regulation. They want a stronger national government. They want more democracy. The Populist Party were a short-lived third party. They never really won much on the national level. They won a lot of stuff on the state and local level. But even on the state and local level, they were brief. They were short-lived. So they're a short-lived third party. And yet they're one of the most important third parties in 
U.S. history because of the influence that they're going to have. When we get into the 20th century, when we get into the 1900s, the U.S. government is going to become much more democratic and much stronger. And it's going to end up embracing a lot of the, the ideas that the populace first put forward in 1892. So that's why the source shows up so much, because it's so influential on the AP exam. All right. So when the uh, most of the platform, that document that they put together in 1892, is trying to identify problems. And so they, they identify deflation as a problem, inequality as a problem, monopolies as a problem, and political corruption as a problem. And they have a solution for every one of those things. For deflation, what they want to do is they want the government to print more money. And the government will only put money in, in circulation if it's backed by gold. So the only way to get more money into circulation is to add more gold, to have a gold rush somewhere. Um, and the populists think, why not add gold and silver? So they call themselves bimetallists um, because they're not just stick, sticking to the gold standard. They want to add gold and silver. So you might hear that sometimes called free silver, bimetallism. Um, but they essentially, they just want to unleash more money into the money supply, more currency, which would trigger inflation in the United States, which could help them um, with their crop prices and their ability to pay their loans off. And, you know, that's their big problem. In regards to inequality, the Carnegie, Rockefeller, J.P. Morgan problem, they, they're demanding income taxes. Remember, there's no income taxes in the United States. There had only been one briefly during the Civil War, but the U.S. primarily makes its money off of tariffs. That's federal government revenue. Um, they also want labor laws, protection for workers. They've, 1892 is when um, Andrew Carnegie is exploiting his workers to the nth degree in the Homestead Steel Strike. They have big problems with monopolies, with U.S. steel, with Standard Oil. And so they say we should nationalize some of these, some of these key industries, railroads, transportation networks, communication networks, land. A lot of that stuff uh, should be controlled by the U.S. government. And political corruption. The Boss-Tweed problem, let's have a secret ballot, let's have direct election of U.S. senators, let's have initiatives where the people themselves can propose a law on the ballot, and then the state legislature doesn't even matter. It's on the ballot, the people vote for it, it becomes a law. A referendum is very similar, it's where the state legislature puts an issue on the ballot on behalf of the voters, and then the voters get, get to vote on that. They also demanded term limits. So they have just idea after idea for how to fix the system. Now, the problem is they don't get many of these things at first. Not many of these things come into existence in the 1890s. There are some states doing initiatives and referendums around this time, but the progressives are going to pick up a lot of these ideas and run with them and succeed with them a couple decades later. In the 1900s and 1910s, the progressives are going to be known and famous for being very successful, but a lot of the ideas they succeed on were first brought up by the populace. So this is one more reason why the populists are so important. Finally, one last reason why the populists are so important. They are going to merge with the Democratic Party. So in 1896, William Jennings Bryan gets nominated to be the Democratic candidate for president. He's going to run against William McKinley, Republican who's demanding we got to keep the tariff. And Bryan and the Democrats decide to pick up this bimetallism issue. Uh, free silver. And so Brian is a great speaker. He, he had a background in preaching and he uh, gave this uh, eloquent speech in which he talked about that he sh we shall not be crucified on a cross of gold. He was arguing against the gold standard. So he wanted inflation. He wanted free silver. He was a bimetallist. And that's the populist biggest issue. And so the populists were torn. Should they nominate their own candidate for president 
and ruin Brian's chances of getting elected and seal the deal for McKinley? Or should they back off and instead endorse Brian and try to pool their votes with the Democrats? And that's what they ended up doing. So it turned into kind of a class warfare election, that 1896 election did. McKinley won most of the North. A lot of the industrial areas I mentioned earlier, the tariff was tied to steel and coal and, and uh, veterans' pensions. So anybody who worked in steel, coal, railroads, or was a veteran tended to vote Republican. Um, Democrats are strong in the South, and thanks to the merging with the populace, gained some support in the Midwest. But it wasn't enough. So Bryan loses, and with that, the, the populace are pretty much done. And so they die out after the 1896 election. But... They did push the Democratic Party. Now, remember the Democratic Party in the Gilded Age, right after the Civil War, is still kind of this white supremacist do-nothing party. But when we look ahead, if you're looking just a few decades down into the future, when we get to Franklin Roosevelt Democratic Party, or Woodrow Wilson even sooner, so Woodrow Wilson will take over as president in 1912. He's a Democrat. He's going to push a lot of aggressive federal government uh, ideas. And then FDR is going to take it to a whole new level when we get it to the New Deal in the 1930s. The Democratic Party will become a very progressive party, um, arguing that the federal government should intervene and, to protect people, to protect downtrodden people. It's the populace who play a role in pushing the Democrats in that direction, pushing them to be more progressive, pushing them to be more anti-monopolist. You can see the legacy here in Minnesota. The Democratic Party in Minnesota, their official name is the DFL Party, the Democratic Farmer Labor Party. They merged. They merged. The farmers merged into that Democratic Party there. And, they, and still take their name from that today. Now, I, I mentioned at the outset the, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Here's the weird little quirky tale about that. L. Frank Baum is the author of that. He lived in, in Aberdeen, South Dakota when he was writing this, this book. So Midwest, populist movement, it's happening all around him. In the story, Dorothy, and I know in the movie she has ruby red slippers, but in the book she has silver slippers. So... You can look into the story and it has all these weird metaphors, allegories that kind of relate to the populist movement. Dorothy's silver slippers were walking on the uh, yellow brick road, which represented gold. So silver and gold together by metallism. Along the way, she meets first the scarecrow, who represents the farmer. Later, she meets the tin man, who represents the industrial workers. And then later, the uh, cowardly lion, who was meant to represent uh, William Jennings Bryan. And where are they going? They're going to Oz. OZ is the abbreviation for ounce, like an ounce of gold. They're going to the Emerald City, Emerald Green, the, the color of money. So there's all these weird connections between uh, the Wizard of Oz and the populist movement. It is believed L. Frank Baum was probably a, bit, uh, a big supporter of the populist movement. Um, and so people love to, to look into all the weird connections between that book and the thing we just talked about. All right, so let's talk about that group that was a little bit more successful, the progressives. Who are they? Their demographics are, they're mainly WASPs, there's the fancy acronym, W-A-S-P. The W stands for white, A-S stands for Anglo-Saxon, and P stands for Protestant. They tended to be urban, not rural, like the, uh, the populace were, were rural. The progressives tend to be urban. They tend to be middle class and educated. A lot of them are women. And they're not really a political party. They're, they're short, there is a short-lived progressive party that, that arises in 1912. But for the 1890s, 1900s, they are, anybody can be a progressive. You can be a Democratic progressive. You can be a Republican progressive. Teddy Roosevelt was a progressive. He was a Republican. 
Woodrow Wilson was a progressive. He was a Democrat. So what unites, what, what makes somebody a progressive is they want the government to address social problems. They want the government to address social problems, not individuals. The government should do something to fix the problems of industrialization, solve some of these abusive issues with industrial society, demand regulations, and they got a lot of uh, stuff fixed. Now, they do have some limitations. Uh, they were, as you're going to see, they were able to spot so many problems in the United States, but they were blind to racial issues. We don't see many progressives taking up racial issues. Lynching was at an all-time high and almost virtually ignored by progressive people. The women's suffrage movement did everything they could to keep black women out of that movement. Um, many progressive people were devout racists and segregationists. Woodrow Wilson's a key example. He's one of the most racist presidents we've ever had, uh, but would call himself a progressive. A lot of progressives supported eugenics and the eugenics movement, which is the idea that there should be selective breeding. Um, the Progressive Party, when they did form in 1912, refused to seat black delegates at that party. And also, a lot of progressives were nativists, not big fans of immigrants. Teddy Roosevelt, good example of that. Let's look at some of those issues and some of the weird facets of this movement. So the muckrakers are sometimes some of the most well-known progressives. These are journalists who are trying to expose corruption and, and horrible business practices and problems. You know, they were good at finding problems. The one critique of them is they were maybe not so great at finding solutions to those problems. Ida Tarbell became famous for showcasing uh, all of the wealth and extravagance of John Rockefeller. And she wrote a big expose about how corrupt Standard Oil was. Lewis Hine became famous for sneaking into companies to take pictures of child labor and publish those in essays and books. Jacob Rees did the same thing with urban poverty. The top picture, the picture on the top left is one of his famous images of how many people were crammed into one tenement there. And so he was trying to highlight what life was like for the poor in New York City. Upton Sinclair became famous for writing about the working conditions and how, how unsafe the food was in meatpacking plants in Chicago. And he called it the jungle. Um, and he's going to have an impact uh, later. We'll get to that. So um, let's focus on some, some other key facets of this movement. Jane Addams uh, succeeded at uh, creating this movement called the Settlement House Movement. She launched the first settlement house in Chicago. It was called Hull House. And the idea there, it was meant to help immigrants. It was help, to meant, uh, help them adjust to American customs, help, help them learn the language. It was not a homeless shelter. She was a deep believer in the social gospel. And so she wanted to apply social science to helping these people out. So she offered education to their children, education to them, counseling services, childcare so they could go to work, cultural services uh, like ethnic nights. She collected scientific data. How much are you working you know, in this neighborhood? What are you earning? Um, how many bars and alcohol uh, providers are in this area? Um, how many kids are working? What's garbage pickup like? And when file reports with the city on this, like often the lack of garbage pickup. So Jane Addams is famous for like, if you ever thought about being a social worker before, Jane Addams is like the first social worker. And a lot of women who work there come out of this uh, very politically active. So these, these uh, hull houses, the settlement houses did not just serve the, the immigrant community, but a lot of the women who went to work for them came out radicalized and got very involved in politics thereafter. 
Prohibition was a big movement, a big part of the, the progressive movement. So this is similar to the antebellum reform movement. The antebellum era, prior to the Civil War, they were pushing for temperance. And then after, after the Civil War, the, they're pushing for prohibition. So it's going to finally happen with the 18th Amendment in 1919. That comes along in World War I. We were fighting Germany in World War I. The German immigration wave into this country had definitely increased beer consumption. Um, there was a group called the Anti-Saloon League that was very effective at tipping close elections. So they would tell politicians, if you don't support prohibition, our members are going to vote for your opponent. And we got, we don't have, like, we're not a massive organization, but we're enough that you need us to win a close race. And so they had all these people who didn't really care one way or the other about prohibition end up supporting prohibition to win these tight elections. Prohibition was not very successful in this country. There was a lot of exemptions. You, uh, you did not have to destroy your alcohol supply once it kicked into effect. So people were free to stock up for like a year. Churches could still serve communion. Um, doctors could write prescriptions. You could still like do whatever you wanted in your own house. So if you had a way to make alcohol, you could do that. And, and you could still use industrial alcohol. Um, so you see some crazy pictures off on the left there. Uh, there's some people got pretty creative at, at, at finding ways to supply alcohol. It, it said that it was actually easier to get your hands on alcohol during the era of prohibition than it was before or after. Uh, it was just, it was, it was a widely accessible deal there. All right. Women's suffrage also succeeded in World War I it, because of World War I. Our president, was, Woodrow Wilson, was saying, we have to make the world safe for democracy. And women were saying, oh, it's good to hear that you care about democracy. How about we make this country a little bit more democratic? They were protesting outside the White House. Alice Paul was famous for doing that. Um, so women were getting really good at, at using stereotypes against them and leveraging them to gain uh, political advantage. Like they were often told, you know, men should care about the public sphere, women should care about the private sphere. And women were saying, well, uh, we, we do, we care about the private sphere. We care about what happens with our kids in our homes and those are political issues and we should be allowed to have opinions about those issues. It worked. Um, women were starting to get the right to vote out west first. Wyoming and Utah were some of the first states to give women the right to vote. And gradually that was kind of working its way to the east. So you can see there's a big 1869 to 1920. That took a long time. That took from the first state that gave women the right to vote, Wyoming. It took 50 years before we had a national amendment um, that gave women the right to vote. And also remember, even though it said women could vote, it was still going to be very hard for anybody who was black in the south to vote. So black women in the south still had a pretty hard time accessing the ballot. All right. Politically, uh, remember the populace wanted some political reforms to make things more democratic. The progressives did too. And so the progressives, like they're, they're worried about the corruption in New York City and Boss Tweed. And the way to fix that, you know, is to switch to a secret voting, what we call the Australian ballot. Once you do that, like Boss Tweed, remember his power resided in the fact of getting his immigrants out to vote and knowing who they voted for. But if they vote in secret, then you can't really know, did your bribe pay off? So the Australian ballot is something the populists and the progressives both fight for. Progressives like the populists also want initiatives and referendums and recalls um, on the state level. Wisconsin is one of the first big pioneers of this. Robert LaFollette is that guy pictured on the left. He's a Wisconsin politician who's famous for pushing for these issues. Presidential primaries were a way to make the nomination process more democratic, and we started to see that roll out during the progressive era. The 17th Amendment uh, was very democratic. It allowed the people for the first time, starting in 1913, to directly elect their senators. No longer would it be elected by state legislatures.
In the 19th Amendment, a good example of expansion of democracy, giving women the right to vote in 1920. On the consumer protection front, uh, if you want a good laugh, find an old Sears catalog, like 1890 Sears catalog, turn to the drug section, and you are going to see some of the craziest things imaginable. Pink pills for pale people, uh, obesity powders, worm cakes, worm syrup. What the heck is any of that doing? If you read the description, it's going to claim that it can cure everything next to cancer. Um, so there's also that, that jungle book written about how disgusting um, meat was in this country and food and, and um, meatpacking plants. So Teddy Roosevelt's presidency, there's two laws passed, Pure Food and Drug Act, Meat Inspection Act, that are meant to crack down on some of this unregulated market. So to make it illegal to put a drug on the market that makes wild claims that it can't do, snake oil, and Meat Inspection Act so that we're not worried about rat feces being or sawdust being in our meat um, and to allow government to inspect that meat. Federal Trade Commission also came about during this time to inspect truth and advertising. So that was another thing that could crack down on that Sears catalog problem. But it's kind of crazy there that, that some of that stuff was possible. You can even find, you'll, you'll even find like cocaine available um, in some of these old Sears catalogs prior to that Pure Food and Drug Act. On the labor front, uh, I mentioned earlier that Teddy Roosevelt did step in on behalf of labor with the square deal to try to help the anthracite coal mine strike. That's the first time the federal government ever um, stepped into a labor dispute and didn't back the owners. There is a Child Labor Act passed in 1916. This would be during Woodrow Wilson's presidency. Big victory for the progressives, but Supreme Court would strike it down. But a lot of states would end up passing child labor laws too. And a lot of states would pass eight-hour workday laws at the state and local level. Um, and then finally, there are, there's going to be some building inspection codes in, uh, passed in the wake of the Triangle Shirtways factory fire. That was a tragedy I described in the period six, topic two review video where all those young girls died in that fire and some of them jumped out of the window. They were locked in, the fire exit collapsed, the, the elevator didn't come back up to rescue them, um, the, the fire trucks didn't reach that floor. So in the wake of that, New York would pass a law allowing for more inspections of, of, of garment sweatshops and more building inspections overall. And then other states would uh, follow suit. On the urban reform front in New York City, Jacob Reese's photos had an impact. The New York City started to do more tenement cleanups and inspections. Um, we started to see New York City embrace public sanitation and other cities, Chicago also, so garbage pickup services, better sewer, clean water, uh, cutting down on the typhoid epidemics and tuberculosis and um, cholera epidemics. Building codes, sprinkler systems, fire escapes, more inspections, all that stuff is going to help the urban reform front um, to crack down on monopolies. Teddy Roosevelt uh, is known as the trust buster. Before he was president in 1890, uh, there was something called the Sherman Antitrust Act passed, which in theory made it possible to break up trusts, but not really being used that way, though. Early on, it was mainly just being used to break up unions. Teddy Roosevelt became president and they started to use it to actually break up some big monopolies. In 1904, they broke up uh, an attempted monopoly. James J. Hill, our St. Paul Railroad tycoon, and J.P. Morgan were going to try to monopolize all the railroads between uh, Minneapolis and Seattle, Washington. And Teddy Roosevelt put a stop to that. Teddy Roosevelt's successor, William Howard Taft, took on Standard Oil in 1911. And then uh, Woodrow Wilson, another progressive president, Democrat, in 1914, would push for the Clayton Antitrust Act, which put some more teeth into the Sherman Antitrust Act. We also see the rise of the income tax, the 16th Amendment, 
Um, it was wildly popular. People hate the income tax today. When it was introduced, people loved it because the only people who it affected were the super rich. So yeah, we want Rockefeller, Carnegie, and Morgan to, to pay more uh, to the federal government. We reduced tariffs, which was, uh, if we have an income tax now, we don't need high tariffs, which was protecting Carnegie. And during Wilson's presidency, they created the Federal Reserve to try to do some regulation of banks uh, and try to take on the money trust of the time. Lastly, there is some efforts to do something about the environment. So the, uh, the very little environmental regulation, sadly, during the uh, Gilded Age, the big business corporation uh, era there. So there's a lot of increasing usage and exploitation of, of the environment. And there's some influential people that step in and say something needs to be done. John Muir, the bearded guy you see on the bottom picture there, he's the famous preservationist. He launches the Sierra Club. He lobbies Teddy Roosevelt to do something to save a lot of these um, majestic uh, you know, landscapes out in the West. And so he wants the government to preserve wilderness just for the sake of preservation, just to keep it beautiful uh, for scenery and beauty purposes. Teddy Roosevelt uh, was, was willing to listen because he was, he was really interested in hunting. And he thought like nature is like a manly place. So we, yeah, we need to set aside nature. A good example of preservation would be the American Antiquities Act, passed during Teddy Roosevelt's presidency. It had been possible prior to this to create national parks. Yellowstone was the first national park. It was created uh, several decades earlier, but that was it. There was only one national park at that moment in time. You needed an act of Congress. So you needed the House and the Senate and the president to all agree to create a national park. The American Antiquities Act was great. The president could set aside land with just a stroke of his pen. He didn't need the House and the Senate. So he did it. So Teddy Roosevelt ends up setting aside all sorts of famous chunks of land, Devil's Tower, Grand Canyon, Chaco Canyon. A lot of these places will later become national parks, but they're just designated national landmarks during his presidency using the Antiquities Act. The Everglades uh, also set aside using the Antiquities Act. Preservation is slightly different than conservation. Teddy Roosevelt's uh, forest service manager, Gifford Pinchot, was a conservationist. And so he would say, land should not be preserved for its beauty land should be preserved for its economic benefit. And a good example of that would be the, the creation of the U.S. Forest Service and the U.S. Reclamation Act, which put the federal government in the business of, of the timber industry and the irrigation and the hydroelectricity industry in the West. And so they took over all the dam building efforts in the West. The preservationists and the conservationists are gonna clash in uh, something called the Hetch Hetchy Valley controversy. The picture of it in the middle there, that's Hetch Hetchy Valley. John Muir wanted to preserve that. He thought it was beautiful. Uh, Gifford Pinchot thought that that river, if a dam was put there, would provide hydroelectricity to the growing, booming city just down the road, San Francisco. All right, so should it be preserved for its economic capacity or should it be preserved for its beauty? All right, John Muir lost. So it, they ended up building a hydroelectric dam in Hetch Hetchy Valley. So the conservationists won out in this uh, period. So Teddy Roosevelt uh, kind of kept a foot in both camps. He, was, uh, he, was, he liked to preserve land, but he also saw the economic value in them. So he's often thought of as one of the first big environmental presidents. Looking back, uh, taking a bird's eye view of this, let's talk briefly about comparing the, the populace to the progressives. Um, both of these groups of people, remember the populists are the farmers and the progressives are the urban reformers, both want to expand democracy. Both want to see initiatives and referendums and direct election of senators. Both support women's suffrage. Some of the biggest populists were women. 
Um, Mary Elizabeth Lease is one of the biggest names on the populist speaking circuit. She's famous for the phrase, farmers, you guys need to raise less corn and more hell. And the populists, when they took over Colorado, one of the first laws they passed was women's suffrage. Um, so both groups supported that. Both wanted to respond to the abuses of the Industrial Revolution. Both wanted to take on monopolies. Both wanted to intervene in the economy more and regulate things more. And both disliked laissez-faire practices of the federal government. They wanted to see that the rich get taxed more and, and more fair redistribution of wealth. So they both supported the 16th Amendment. Um, well, I should say, had the populace still been a party, they would have supported that. But they wanted to see an income tax. They wrote it into their platform in 1892. Um, they both supported labor reform, although the populace never succeeded much at getting industrial workers to vote with them. They tried to put things in their platform that would appeal to them. That's like the Tin Man and the Wizard of Oz. And both didn't do much to try to recruit African-Americans into their movement. That was a downfall for both of them. On the different side, remember the populists are farmers, they're rural, the progressives are urban, the populists don't experience much legislative success, the progressives do, the progressives get a lot of their, their ideas put into law, into the Constitution even, with the amendments, and the progressives don't really care much about that economic bimetallism issue. So with that, that's where we'll stop. What I hope you can do in addition to checking out the possible short answer questions is maybe watch Wizard of Oz one more time and look at it uh, in a new light. All right, good luck.